0: Hello from Austin, and welcome to episode 113 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It is Wednesday, March 6th. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. Winter's coming. Winter is coming. But it's coming in April.
1: Well, yeah, although I mean, the way the, way the weather's been here in Austin this week, winter, winter's kind of here. I know, but then it comes and goes,
0: and we're going to be back up to the beautiful sunny We've had the weirdest,
1: like, yo-yo. I mean, like, this is my third winter in Austin, and the first winter was delightfully warm, and the second winter was surprisingly cold,
0: and this winter has been, you know, a little bit of each, a little bit of each. <laughs> yeah, that's that's classic Texas weather. But um, the Chamber of Commerce uh, commits to South by Southwest organizers that come Friday the eighth uh, in two days when it all starts off. We will have so, sunny seventy degrees so, so weather. Here, here's my as an Austin neophyte, like I thought it
1: was a, an article of faith that South By was gonna overlap with our spring break. How come it's not this year?
0: Yeah, I, 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 everyone in town is talking about this. Uh, no one knows, is it the Austin Independent School District or was it UT? Somebody pushed back spring break a week later than it normally is. I track this because it tracks my anniversary. Ah. My anniversary. And so uh, for once, we're actually gonna be here doing the parts of South Seriously? By that we care most about, which are the uh, the Idea Festival parts. Although actually, we're, we're,
1: we're gonna run away for part of it. Um, so the uh, before we get into the actual substance, I just wanna wish a very happy anniversary, Bobby, to McCulloch versus Maryland. That, speaking of anniversaries, that's
0: a good one. They've got a few years on me now. Two
1: hundred years ago today.
0: Yeah, yeah. They're they're uh, they're uh, they're up on us I, I'm su- hundred and eighty one. I'm surprised actually that there aren't more
1: like you know Oftentimes, you'll see a whole bunch of like law school and law review symposia around major anniversaries of things Yeah, like, McCulloch is McCulloch not getting the like, like, I
0: know McCulloch turning two hundred to me is a big deal. So let's you want to you want to do some you know impromptu McCulloch discussion? No, in, in, no, no. Oh, okay. I was gonna ask you like what's your favorite part because there's a lot of cool. We parts. must never forget that it is a constitution we are expounding. Yeah, that's that's good rhetoric for sure. Uh, what about oh, you calling it rhetoric? Yeah. yeah. Oh, no, I know it's more I, than
1: that. But like, I feel like that was you know. All right, so 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 for the non lawyers who are listening and who are like, what the heck are we talking about right now? So, McCulloch versus Maryland, we'll we'll get to national security law. Um, This is all in the bigger picture. Yeah, it actually is. So, McCulloch versus Maryland is, depending upon how you count, no worse than the third most important. Constitutional decision handed down by the, the Marshall Court, the Supreme Court during the 34 and a half year tenure of Chief Justice John Marshall. Wait, so I have to
0: interject to ask, like, who, what are some, without ordering them, are we, yeah. Marbury, Gibbons, uh, what no, else? No, I, put, I, I
1: don't put Gibbons in the top three. Not in the top three. Okay, who's your. My my big three are Marbury, which establishes, which establishes order, depending on your perspective, just Ar- confirms. It at least
0: articulates the power of judicial review, way. right? Yeah. The
1: Supreme Court's power to strike down federal statutes as being mm-hmm. unconstitutional.
0: McCulloch does what it does to it, With it confirm to, a broad right. understanding of necessary and proper. Proper. And so
1: McCulloch is the major case when it comes to the scope of Congress's regulatory power and the idea that Congress is allowed to choose the means um, yeah. to achieve constitutionally permitted ends. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually think from a structural perspective, and this is my Fed court's bias coming through, um, Martin, Martin versus, versus Hunter-Lessey. Hunter
0: uh, I thought, okay, yeah, fair, um, yeah, right. 1816, um, which
1: is why, right, the Supreme Court has the constitutional authority to, to review state, the state courts. There you go. So do like it in Richmond. Where well, I believe yeah. it
0: was the Supreme Court of Virginia that was getting crosswise with them. So I think
1: it was technically the Virginia Court of Appeals because that's ah. what the Court of last resort was known as at the time. But uh, yes, go. yes, very, very crosswise. Good.
0: All right, good. We all right, we've checked our, our but so our just yard box. so
1: so part of why McCulloch is really important, just just to put it out there, is um McCulloch, I think, can safely be said to embrace. Not necessarily living constitutionalism, but the idea that we should do more than just read the text of the Constitution when trying to understand what it means. Now, whether whether the more means looking to original public meaning, whether the more means looking to its broad purposes, right? McCulloch is the idea that we shouldn't read the Constitution
0: literally. Interesting. So we could. So you're framing it in terms of what it means for our great methodological interpretive wars, um, and that's that's definitely. Depending on what level of generality you mean that at, I can get on board with it. I mean that's
1: a pretty high level of generality. Yeah, yeah. At,
0: at a high enough level we can all get on board. Well,
1: the, the irony is that I think both <laughs> both of the major camps of modern constitutional interpretive methodology claim McCulloch.
0: Of course. Well, and so what I would say to, to narrow its yes. methodological import a bit, I would say that it's by by accepting the triumph of the Hamiltonian interpretation Dun, of da, da, da. necessary as opposed to right. the the Early Madison, not the late Madison, but the pre-presidential <laughs> Madison interpretation of, of strict necessity. It's all about when in figuring out what what you can do as Congress to carry into being a textually enumerated power of Congress, right. are you stuck with things that are strictly necessary to implement those textual powers, or that are convenient? Can, yeah, can you can you read necessary as more useful? Right. and that was the Hamiltonian position. That's that becomes the Marshall position, and it's the
1: President Madison position, and, um. and it is the President. <laughs> so, and this is and this is all and this is all in the context of the the constitutionality of the Second National Bank um, and whether Maryland had the power to impose a tax on the Second National Bank. Marshall famously uses the question of Maryland's power as an opportunity to first explore why the National Bank itself is constitutional and on an even deeper level to explain why the federal constitution is actually supreme. Um, and so McCulloch is actually crucially important structurally in the um, explaining the supremacy of the federal constitution. Um, the answer is not just because the federal constitution says it's supreme. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, I, one of the things I love about, so my, I, I said it, we, we must never forget it's a constitution we're expounding. Actually, the passage of McCulloch I love the most is the one that a, um, someone who is going to soon become a, a legal apprentice would borrow from about 34 years later, that government of the people, by the people, and for the people, ah. which actually comes from McCulloch, Are you accusing
0: Lincoln of plagiarism, my friend? No, no. He said it better. (laughs) It's not plagiarism if you improve upon it. Indeed. That's that's a later art. Um, You know, my favorite thing about the case is the fact that in the 70s, PBS teamed up with somebody in this series of video recreations of the fact patterns and the arguments both on the bench and in chambers, of course, chambers back then, meaning chambers. at the bar, of right, the like, hotel, the boarding house. Yeah. Right. Um, and it's the, in mo- Henry Friendly, like, you know, or was it Fred Friendly? Henry. Henry Friendly is a, Fred uh, Friendly is uh, different. Yeah, yeah, yeah indeed. Uh, Henry Friendly is a, um, supervising the production and all the rest. And the recreations, which are done in period yeah. garb by the, v- I can only say, the most earnest acting. <laughs> and it is really fun to watch the setup for this case. So they have a, they play out a scene where a guy from the, the the uh, from the Maryland authorities comes and says uh, he wants to go see uh, James McCulloch at the bank that's there in Baltimore, and and they make him cool his heels for a while. He gets brought in. The actor they choose to play James McCulloch is is toweringly tall and kind of physically intimidating, and they have him played in a way that he keeps walking around, kind of stands behind the guy from Baltimore uh, and smokes his cigar, mm. kind of buzz the smoke in his face. I mean, it really drives it home in a way that students in my con law class will never forget because I make them watch all these videos. <laughs> well,
1: and Luther Martin, right, argued on behalf of Marilyn. Yeah, so he's portrayed in it later uh, on as well. Um, right. Luther Martin, uh, not to be confused with not Martin Luther. Th- th- yeah, don't get that one backwards. From Luther versus Borden. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, all this is to say, right, um, you know, this is an, this is supposed to be a podcast about national security law, but it's fun to sort of think about the broader anniversaries yeah, when this they come. Yeah, stuff definitely matters. Okay, right, so what but are we, we gonna, actually have some we have some good stuff today. Right, I was gonna say this is, we're not stalling. Like there actually is a lot of stuff. So there was um we we were gonna start with this really major um, ninth circuit decision from last Thursday um, in a case called I think it's it's either Fazaga or Fazaga versus FBI, yeah. um, which has a lot of overlap with regard to FISA, the state secrets privilege, and lots of other things near and dear to our heart. Mm -hmm. Um, We're also going to talk about the, to my mind, surprising news yesterday um, that the government has basically abandoned the phone records program as modified by the USA Freedom Act, um, which you have a a blog post up on Lawfare, as I I saw just just a few minutes ago. we have um, the the interesting question of the subpoena in the ch- the, the subpoena to Chelsea Manning, um, which I think media media outlets are I think correctly assuming is somehow connected to an ongoing grand jury investigation of Julian, Julian Assange, Assange and WikiLeaks. Um, we've got the Jared and Ivanka security clearance brouhaha, which I think has escalated to further levels, new heights of 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 ludicrousness and and ridiculousness. Jared, ludicrous speed. Ludicrous speed. <laughs> um, indeed. Um, I don't. We, if we have time, maybe we'll say a bit about reflections on the Cohen hearing and where things are going also with the President's National Emergency Declaration, although I think we might run out of time. And we have some
0: very... Speaking f- of the President, we have an executive order.
1: Oh, that's right. We have a new... I'm sorry. That's right. As we were getting ready to record, we have a new executive order revoking um, an Obama-era executive order about transparency when it comes to uh, counterterrorism strikes overseas, which we'll talk about. And then for frivolity, because Bobby Winter really is coming, yes. um, there's the, the the new trailer for season eight of See, Game of Thrones we don't need
0: a show episode to review we'll review the trailer <laughs> it's, gotten, it's gotten that bad yeah and, and for those who are counting at home I, I'm still we've watched through episode six of I'm Detective. waiting for you hey I was, at, I was at Cybercom's legal conference the past two days real quick shout out to all the great people that I was interacting with there it was a really cool conference during the unclassified sessions I stayed for um, and I ran into a number of uh, podcast listeners, so to, to you folks, thank you very much. That was great connecting with y'all. So, Steve, uh, should we jump right in with with Fazaga? Let's do it. Okay, there's a, where do you, where do we start? The, the opinion weighs in at well north of 100 pages. So
1: it's it's a Judge Burzon special, and I should say you I put for know. Judge Berzon. Um this is this is a Judge Burzond yeah. opinion. She's like she's going to wear you down.
0: Well, so I was worried when I started reading it, just on you know sort of time con- yeah. protection grounds, that it was going to be just endless, and endless. But I'm afraid it's just there's many layers to this particular dip, that's the problem right? so do you,
1: so why don't, do you want to do like a sort of 1000 foot what this case is actually about before we sort of break apart the the legal holdings let's
0: let's super oversimplify it so we don't go too far down the rabbit hole here so this is about a uh, a confidential informant that was uh, on FBI payroll who was in a a particular mosque or maybe a, a series of mosques but there's a particular one that looms especially large in this case uh uh, interacting and ingratiating himself into the community. Now this this is all based on this is critical. Motion to dismiss stage, we're at 12b6. This is all the That's allegations. That's rule 12
1: of the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure.
0: That's right. So in what this means my non-lawyer friends or everyone who's forgotten their civ pro is, everything. Which by the way
1: appears to be all law students. <laughs> oh, why do you say that? Cuz in vet
0: course I'm like, "Hey, remember Erie? They're like, "No." <laughs> <laughs> well, rem- rem- you must remember this. <laughs> A kiss is still a kiss. But also, in Rule 12b-6, when somebody moves to dismiss a complaint, the obligation of the reviewing court is to accept as true... The allegations, the well-played allegations in the complaint. The, pl- the plausible well-played plausible, allegations. Right, this is Iqbal Iqbal. Stuff. Um, And to draw all inferences that need to be drawn in favor of the plaintiff. So the whole idea here is you, you set the scales very much in the plaintiff's favor. You do not entertain factual disputes, even right. if the allegations are just unfounded.
1: Assume, so, assume the plaintiff's right about the facts, yeah. right? Which we'll get to. Right. right?
0: We have a whole, for the non-lawyers, there, you should know there's a whole separate process. If they have no evidence of key facts, there's a process for that later. And that actually looms large here Indeed. because Indeed. a lot of the work gets done by an allegation that may or may not have any factual backing. Um, so, so suffice to say that this this guy is in there, sort of portrayed as an agent provocateur. He's trying to gin up trouble, see who might respond to his calls for getting involved in violence, et cetera. Um, the the complaint alleges that when he started doing this, they quickly started, you know, they called the FBI, started complaining, and eventually find out that he'd been wearing a wire in his conversations with people. He had been, say, first wearing a wire directly where he's there. Secondly, leaving behind. Uh, microphones in the uh, mosque itself, uh, including when he wasn't right there as part of the conversation. So leaving bugs in the room. So think electronic surveillance, 1801F, uh, fourth category. So then, thirdly, alleging that he also uh, that there were bugs placed by FBI, uh, not necessarily through him, I think, but just were placed in various private offices and homes. So three categories of surveillance that all become the basis for uh, a variety of surveillance type offenses or, or uh, claims. Claims, sorry, in criminal mode, <laughs> and surveillance claims and religious discrimination exactly. claims.
1: Eleven different claims, which is part of why this opinion checks in north of hundred pages.
0: Sure, and, and yeah, so so of course the plaintiffs you're gonna you're gonna put as many theories of liability. As you can in there, but they fall into those two buckets: surveillance offenses and religious discrimination offenses. Um, there are both individual, and uh, individual capacity defendants in, from the FBI. There are official capacity defendants from FBI, and then there's the institutional defendants. Uh, and the uh, district, okay, so the the government moves to dismiss on on various grounds, mm-hmm. uh, not just
1: twelve b six, so also some twelve b ones as
0: well, right? So in in similar. Uh, Non, you don't get into the facts, right? Right, right. Just to, right. I
1: mean, the, the government, the government, Black and the of officers assert a series of defenses in the in the trial court that the claims are first of all that the officers are entitled to qualified immunity, um, that the claims are um, all displaced by the state secrets privilege um, and a series of other defenses.
0: Um, the district court. Wait, wait, on, on the all all displaced. So part of what's interesting here is the government actually was a little bit, uh, I would say, almost uncharacteristically circumspect in the way it deployed yes. the privilege. Yes, and this isn't you got. To understand the context the Obama administration from early on in 2009 was at great pains to try to defuse all this momentum that had been building in Congress which we've talked about on this show before. Deep dive. Deep dive on state secrets. Um, trying to defuse the momentum towards legislative reform of the state secrets privilege and part of how it did that was to promulgate uh, internal procedures to get a lot more uh, a lot more internal checking before the privilege was asserted and suffice to say that in terms of what they then went into court and did a lot of people would say and have said, by and large, they look just like the Bush administration, invoking the state secrets privilege, trying to get claims dismissed. But I think here we have an example where they were more circumspect, and I think it reflects that different process. Mm-hmm where they, uh, they acknowledged in their filing that there was some amount of information about this particular episode, which, you know, certainly on, on the West Coast, this is a pretty well-known set of episodes. There's mm-hmm. a lot of information that's actually already out there about this. And the government said, you know, there's, it's possible that some of these claims could go forward. And insofar as the case could go forward as to some of those claims, they're not asserting the privilege uh, or claiming that there should be dismissal at the threshold, though that could come up later depending on how the litigation went. And that was, that was a more circumspect uh, way of uh, way of invoking the privilege, though they still were trying to get many of the claims dismissed.
1: Yeah, all right. So um, the short version, I mean, that's the short version. <laughs> I mean, the, the procedural history is like four pages long. <clears throat> but anyway, the short version is that the government had substantially prevailed um, on its motions to dismiss in the district court, um, and these were a couple of consolidated appeals. There were a couple of contexts in which the district, in which the government didn't, didn't uh, or the officers didn't prevail, and they appealed. So there's an appeal and there's a cross appeal, um, and part of what's weird about this case is the Ninth Circuit takes three years to decide it. Um, it was actually argued back in 2015. Yeah, um, what, you, what accounts for that? Eleven claims. I mean, I you know I just I think this was a bear. Um, God, it just seems like. That seems like an awful lot of delay. I agree. Um, there might have been some stuff going on. They might have been waiting yeah. behind the scenes for a couple of other cases that had priority to
0: be decided. Oh, by the way, one one consequence of all this delay is that one of our alums uh, was no longer working Indeed. on the case. But we want to give a shout out to uh, Catherine Wagner, uh, UT alum, who was, well, well, when ACLU, she was at yeah. ACLU, worked on this case a lot. Um, and so it's always fun to see former students involved in in the cases we discuss. So, so I don't want to. I mean, I don't. I don't. We could take like three full episodes to get through this opinion. Yeah. I, I really want to focus
1: on one part of it. So, I mean, the to make a long story short, the Ninth Circuit um, affirms a couple of the dismissals, yeah. reverses or vague or reverses or at least disagrees with most of them, but sends almost all of the important stuff back to the trial court, right? This is this is an interlocutory rule, but it's basically reinstating a bunch of the claims that the district court had dismissed.
0: Some of this was pretty easy to get rid of, like, for example, yeah. claiming that there was a surveillance-related violation when the guy was wearing a wire... Um, this was, you know, the invited informer doctrine. Yep. The court says, yeah, yeah, there's, there's, it's not a search. Right, you can't mount a claim on that. And basis. then the other
1: direction, right? I mean, there are a couple of contexts in which um, there was uh, the district court, the National Court just had like misread RIFRA, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Mm-hmm. To me, the the part that's important to us is the discussion of the interaction between FISA, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, and the State Secrets Privilege. That's right. Um, and wh- I, to me, the most important sort of beyond the hyper specific facts of this case. The most important structural holding in this opinion um, is the Ninth Circuit's conclusion that the cause of action Congress provided in FISA, in 50 U.S.C. Section 1810, um, overrides and displaces the state secrets privilege when it comes to claims that government surveillance was inconsistent with FISA, what we might
0: call, Bobby, FISA claims. Um, And that's a big deal. Well, what's what's especially interesting here, though, is – the application of the or the invocation of this the Section eighteen oh six mechanism in, in a context where it's not the government trying to so let's back up e- everyone agrees that if it's a case where the government wants to prosecute somebody and wants to use the fruits of FISA surveillance to do it um, there is no and, co- and
1: properly notifies the defendant that they want to
0: right so that, but if you because <laughs> sometimes so you're, they haven't okay so. Sure. So when they when they're trying to do this, FISA anticipated the situation would arise and wanted to create a mechanism where there could be a proper motion to suppress analogous to what you'd have in a regular criminal mm-hmm.
1: case. A Franks hearing is what it's called in the in the normal criminal right. context. Now
0: this this one, what what ends up happening is if you so you've got an aggrieved person that is a person who's been subjected to electro, what counts as electronic surveillance within the meaning of FISA. And let's be clear at the outset, putting an electronic recording device into a physical space. Um, when it's uh, within certain you know geographic constraints that are certainly satisfied here, it's all in the United States. That's electronic surveillance. If you do it for foreign intelligence purposes, that is clearly within the definition that FISA is concerned with. Um, if you've got an aggrieved person who has a claim that this was done unlawfully, that is inconsistent with either the Fourth Amendment or with FISA's own terms, it can be challenged and it gets challenged under the FISA procedure pursuant to a uh, to a, most ex parte, an ex parte in camera proceeding, there's some complexities there, but there is a way to do it. The case doesn't just go away.
1: Yeah, Now, I will say, I mean, I I, I have been critical. I mean, so the most important decision in this context is the Seventh Circuit's 2014 decision in the Daoud case, um, which I've been quite critical of. But yes, there's a procedure that the statute makes expressly available in criminal cases. Right. And one right. of the moves that Judge Berzon makes is to suggest that that procedure should also be analogized to and borrowed from in the context of civil c- complaints under Section 1810.
0: Right. She basically says, look, this, is, this these people are complaining. They are aggrieved persons within the of FISA. Now, they have an array of claims beyond FISA. Right. But they have an array of claims here that makes them an aggrieved person because it was an electronic bug. Now, again, I want to underscore the most sensitive part of that, the part that claims that they put something in a, an apartment or a room or an office, that is clearly going to be factually contested. The government, sure. the government has said, like, that's just not true. Sure, sure. Um, but so people should shouldn't assume that this is going to necessarily go to the merits just because of this ruling, but the legal principle here is a hugely important one. Can you be someone who gets the benefit of this procedure, never mind that it's a civil proceeding, but it's a civil proceeding where the government's still not the one initiating it, and the specter of state secrets arises that the thing that they're trying to protect is is not a FISA application. Mm -hmm. It's not the underlying case was made. We don't actually know that there was a FISA application here. Maybe there wasn't even one. Mm -hmm. Um, The government's not necessarily... uh, itself trying to bring any of this into court, but it's being brought upon them. And so the interpretive question that that the court wrestles with that we both agree is a question of the first order of importance is, does FISA actually allow a person who can otherwise establish yep. their standing yep. um, to go ahead and get at least into the ex parte in camera process of then deciding, then deciding the legality of, of the surveillance? So
1: I was struck, the analogy to me, and I don't know if it occurred to you, is to the decision by all of the D.C. district judges after Bumetian and the Guantanamo-Hapias cases to borrow from SIPA. Um, the Classified Information Procedures Act. So, right, that there's, you know, there are these tools Congress has provided for criminal cases um, that we have some experience, Bobby, of federal judges analogizing to in at least somewhat comparable civil context. Entirely, I should say, well, not entirely. Largely, I think Bobby, right? Because the view is that these statutory procedures are a compromise that balances the government's interest in keeping information secret with the moving with the adverse party's interest in you know litigating their claims.
0: I, I think that's very much right. That in the habeas context, there was basically federal common law making process rule making borrowed by, from by analogy, And there, you know, they had no choice but to do something. So why not go with what looks like good policy? I don't. I see the analogy or the relationship to this, but I think what's going on here is is, is very much a claim that this directly governs. Mm-hmm. That this is a statutory authority. Mm-hmm. It's not just that because I think if it were just borrowing, she'd be way outside of her lane. She can't just say that looks like a good way. We ought we ought to have a system where we can do this ex parte in camera thing as a as a secondary measure instead of dismissal. I think it's critical to the holding that that it be that that actually is strictly applicable but see, here. But you
1: see, so it's interesting because you frame it as as the alternative was dismissal, right? And I'm seeing I actually took Judge to be saying the 1806 procedure is actually protective of the government, right? Because um, it it's all ex, it starts out as an ex parte proceeding. The judge is only allowed to bring in the you know the plaintiff's lawyer insofar as he or she determines that it's necessary to help the judge find out whether there was a violation of in the first place, I actually take that as a good compromise because it seems to me that it's saying FISA, there would have been no point in having a private civil cause of action under FISA if the government could just show up and invoke the state secrets privilege. But the, the consequence of that should not be open season. The consequence of that should be carefully calibrated litigation consistent with FISA where the burden is, where where the government is still entitled to the, you know, sort of presumption of regularity and the trial court acting in an ex parte manner until he or she concludes it's not possible is resolving the, the propriety question on their own in
0: camera and, you know, behind closed doors. So I only use that formulation because that's how I think several times in the opinion the I know. court uses you know, it, I know. it says Look, you know, instead of dismissal, which is what the district court had actually right. done, um, so it's not going to be a welcome compromise from the government's point of view, except insofar as the other, the third possibility is, you know, no privilege at all, and that's so, the thing, right? So, but because um, here's a problem because right? because the, the judge Burzon starts from the proposition that I
1: find hard to dispute. That 1810 would serve very little purpose at all if it didn't at least in some way modify the state secrets privilege. Because, I mean, by definition, any surveillance, that any electronic surveillance that could be the basis of an 1810 claim would be protected by the state secrets privilege.
0: Right. No, so the question is, it, there's no question for 1810 and 1806 in combination to be doing any work. It's got to apply sometimes. Now, everyone agrees it would certainly apply when the government's trying to prosecute using the fruits of it. 1810 doesn't. 1810 is civil. Well, right. No, no. I'm saying... I'm sorry. Right. Okay. So, comp- you're right. You're right. That's a fair point. So, the the, the criminal, um, the ability of 1806 to be used by criminal defendants is one thing. 1810 makes clear there can be civil litigation. The question then becomes, all right, so is this the type of civil litigation? Is this scenario one? Bearing in mind that it's not necessarily clear that this isn't a FISA um, scenario to begin with. But... We, what I want to do, what I want to get to is parsing 1806 itself, which is which is the key work the court does. And I actually think it's, it's not so easy, as the court makes it sound. I think this question's harder. And, and because it's, I think, a much closer call on statutory interpretation, it therefore looms large how the court handles the constitutional avoidance question, which in turn depends on how the court handles the characterization of what the state secret's privilege is. So sort of three layers there. What does the statute say? Is there a case here for constitutional avoidance? And and if so, is this that kind of case? Um, There are a bunch of scenarios that are described here as scenarios where this procedure is available. One of them is when the uh, government makes notification to the court under 1806C that the government intends to use the fruits of electronic surveillance in a proceeding and, and Judge Berzon seizes on that as one of the ways in which there's two arguments for why this applies. That's one she emphasizes. My initial reaction was, well, how can that be? The government's not trying to use the, the paradigm case where the government wants to advance its civil or uh, or prosecutorial claim by putting in the fruits of surveillance. This isn't that. And her answer to that, as I, as I understood it, was, well, no. The government's planning. It's saying that it needs, as a defendant in this case, if it goes forward, it's going to need to be able to defend itself, bringing in the fruits of of surveillance or or the applications or or things related to the electronic surveillance. The interpretive question this raises in my mind is: Is eighteen oh oh six F's first category, the one that connects to eighteen oh six C, is it? Limited to the situation where what the government wants to do is to affirmatively try to get into evidence, um, the application itself, or the direct fruits of surveillance which arguably are not the case here. It's, yes, they are invoking state secrets about the overall program, but the description earlier in the case makes it sound like what they're worried about is that there are other collateral state secrets about why the investigation or how the investigation was predicated originally, who the targets were. They wouldn't themselves involve playing any of the recordings or otherwise actually getting into the recordings themselves. And it's, to me, this first category is about The recordings or at least i think that's the right way to read it i think i think the court the panel is reading it much more broadly than that so that's that's one place where i i think i disagree i want to think about it more but i think i disagree with how they interpreted it Um, the panel then has an alternative ground because there's there's a further provision that and i'm paraphrasing here allows 1806f to come into play where um, there's a motion made by any aggrieved person Um, under any statute, doesn't have to be FISA, uh, or any cause of action, any statute or rule, uh, before any court to discover or obtain the applications or orders or other materials that related to the electronic surveillance. And again, I think the same issue arises. The court says, look, uh, these are aggrieved people, or at least they're alleging at this stage, and we have to credit that. They're alleging they're aggrieved people. Um, They need to obtain... The uh, fruits of this collection, the court said, because in the end, they're asking for injunctive relief to destroy them. I think that's too cute by half. I'm not persuaded that that counts as obtaining the materials to say that my relief I'm seeking is to destroy them. I I see it. That that does contemplate somebody's going to do something to them. But I think you could effectuate that relief without the plaintiffs ever having any of it. They, the government could have it the whole time. They could destroy it. I don't think that there, that's never the aggrieved person obtaining it. And the whole thing just kind of feels to me a little bit square peggish round hole. But so, so why do you think the obtained language is there? Because when you've got, uh, let's say you've got somebody, for example, the proto- prototype, it's the criminal defendant, and they've been surveilled. They want to have, the defense team wants, of course, to have all the fruits. And if you're the plaintiff, too, you, want, you might want to have all this uh, recording so you could hear what exactly your person actually was saying on tape. I think that makes perfect sense. And, and is, you don't see that as a sort of incident to destroying it? No, I don't. Okay. You know? so, so, a yeah. so a plaintiff. So I think it would be a harder case if, if the yeah. plaintiffs here were saying, hey, we want all the tapes. Right. Give us all the tapes. I think that, or at least if the court had said, hey, at some point in the discovery process, yeah. they need to get all the tapes. So, so, so I, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I, I guess I see the allure from the perspective
1: of Judge Burzon and the panel in saying, well, wait a second. I mean, the alternative is, you know, I guess I'm back to what we were fighting about before, which is yes, there's a little bit of a square peg in a round hole problem here. But 1806, the 1806 procedure is so much better than what to me is the alternative, which is nothing. Right, as and nothing either because you're dismissing under state secrets, which seems to be inconsistent with eighteen ten, right, or nothing because there's no privilege at all, and so the government has nothing, has no grounds for protecting from ordinary civil discovery. Write the fruits of the surveillance.
0: Well, I think this is where the common ground that we've identified before between ourselves is: we both think that, aside from what the law currently is, we both <laughs> think that as a matter of what it, what might be better a better way to run the railroad would be to create these sort of hybrid mechanisms so you could get closer to the truth and get closer to actual you know enforcement of these rules. But I guess,
1: but, but hold up. But, but well, as a matter of, I mean, so there's there's a, there's a kind a, a of statutory interpretation called the whole act rule, right? Which is that a statute should be read so that its provisions actually make sense when read together right? And I just, I, to me, right, the the language of it, the the text of 1806, I think, to me, ought to give way to the purpose of 1810. Um, Because the text of 1810 is explicit that it creates a private cause of action against those who commit allegedly unlawful surveillance under FISA. Congress did that on, Congress doesn't provide private causes of action that often. And so I don't know how you give effect to that clear text and purpose without some kind of procedure to adjudicate
0: those claims. You know, it raises an, a larger question, like why why all the parsing of eighteen oh six F at all if if at the end of the day what you've just made an argument about eighteen ten, I, I grant you that standing alone, yeah. it seem it seems like eighteen ten simply is doing the preemptive work, mm-hmm. perhaps. But that's, you know, the analysis here is all about parsing no, through the statutory wickets of the, the much narrower and, wickets. And, and, and what I'm house. suggesting is that I think it's because the panel
1: probably thought that that was better, right? Mm-hmm. That that was more consistent with the overall purpose of the statute
0: as opposed to the individual provisions of the statute. Yeah. Whereas I would argue that... 1810 opens the door towards the civil litigation possibility by creating the liability Mm -hmm. and then 1806 F modulates just when we're going to allow that to proceed. It's not nothing. And people can pass through these wickets, but I'm not sure these people can, but, but, but but then why isn't the right answer? Hold on a
1: second. So, so leaving aside whether 1806 is properly invoked, why isn't the right answer? Go back to the district court. District Court conducts the eighteen oh six F procedure and you know, the government complies, provides what the court and the court takes one look at it and says, Oh, this isn't a FISA problem and says you know, I find no unlawful surveillance, I dismiss a agent10 claim.
0: Well, this is where it gets also even more complicated. And by the way, clearly part of what's going on here is we've got a very important fact pattern that it doesn't look like 1978 FISA drafters did enough thinking about how to yep. manage this. That yep. that's And so we're, we're wrestling with incomplete drafting and trying to take first principles and, and drive these statutes forward to deal with them. But we need to mention another interpretive principle, which is the one the government invoked here and that the, the Ninth Circuit brushes aside, The government argued that, look, insofar as there's close interpretive calls here, you got to err on our side because they say that's constitutional avoidance, which, of course, only makes sense if the state secrets privilege is rooted constitutionally. And I think that's one where you and I have long disagreed about whether – I don't think you buy it at all. I partially buy it. I don't buy it at all. Yeah, and I partially buy it. Um, they you know, and the courts are split on this. The the Fourth Circuit takes the position that this has constitutional wealth. And the Ninth Circuit doesn't. Right. And And so so, I mean
1: so so this leads to my I mean, I I I don't want to go too much further into the weeds, because there's other stuff that I want to get to and I want I don't want to lose our our listeners. Yeah. Um do you think the FBI will want to take this on Bonker to the Supreme Court, or do you think there's enough like there's enough opportunity for them to still get all the relief they want on remand that they might at least wait to see what happens on remand
0: yeah, I think that's a really close call i mean if this if this precedent is read for all it's worth, and there's other interesting parts of it too, especially mm-hmm. the uh the the extension of reasonable expectation of privacy to the group setting yep. of the mosque
1: and the invited informer how the invited informer doctrine applies yeah. in religious establishments yeah.
0: i think i think they're okay with how they went on that one but i think on the extension of um, reasonable expectation yeah. of privacy to a setting like well there's a recording going on in a mosque during otherwise public proceedings where right. people can come in right. i think that actually might be something they're going to be fired up about as well i think the court says this is the first circuit ruling on that topic yeah it's, it's. I mean, it, it's. Are they also also think yeah. it matters. They're going to look at the court and they're going to think. I think we've got five votes possibly for a stricter approach to constitutional avoidance on this.
1: Maybe. Although, again, I mean, it's worth stressing. There's ne- the Supreme Court's never had a FISA case. Yeah. Um, right. And the Supreme Court's never had a case about whether the state secrets privilege is constitutionally grounded or, or as as we talked about, we did our deep dive. Right. The Supreme yeah. Court's seminal state secrets case, Reynolds, says nary a word about whether the privilege derives from the common law or the Constitution.
0: Yeah. But it sure talks a lot about foreign affairs and national security. And these are. These are things that one can – The well, Congress has no power over. I didn't say the Congress has no power over it, but, but I think that both – I think you're just convincing me that there are a lot of constitutional equities that are uh, at work with the state secrets privilege. Um. All right. So, so we're loving this case, obviously. We think it's a super interesting, obviously very important case. Mm-hmm. And I, I suspect – what do you think? Uh, can, what, what do you think is going to happen? Are we going to get an en banc eventually? Yeah, that's what happened in there in the last Ninth Circuit big state secrets case, right?
1: Yeah, Jefferson. Jefferson. Although the problem, the problem with On Bonk in the Ninth Circuit here, um, you know, I love Judge Berzon. I don't think anyone would 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 place her in the middle of the Ninth Circuit. Um, But the other active judge on the panel, Judge Gould, um, is right in the middle. Um, of, oh, so
0: they may not have the numbers.
1: So, so I don't. I mean, the government may go for you know on Bonk. I'm not sure they they may you know it, the government might go for on Bonk just so that even if they lose, you know, they'll get a nasty dissent from the denial of rehearing on Bonk. Um, you yeah. know, which will sort right. of help, help frame those tapes for certain.
0: Yeah. All right. So watch this space. Big stuff. All right. Other big stuff going on. Um, speaking of FISA, right, the uh, the phone records program. Oh my god, that was that's was pretty crazy. So, um you know, as as podcasters of course, we love this story because the genesis of this story is the Lawfare podcast. Uh and it, it seemingly kind of, you know, the Lawfare podcast has all kinds of different types of formats. This seemed like a pretty standard uh very interesting I you know, very worth listening to interview with uh, uh a bipartisan pair of of congressional staffers talking about national security issues in the Congress. Um But really savvy listeners alerted when one of the speakers mentioned in passing, and really, it really felt like just sort of like a, oh, you know. So as 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 I assume we all know, the the USA Freedom Act, uh, sort of distributed version of contact chaining with telephone metadata program, we'll unpack that in a minute, (laughs) uh, uh, has been used for the past six months, and it was like, (laughs) you know, I wish we need the record screeching sound. Come again? What's that? Yeah, it right. says so, so here's the context. Um, first, um, some high altitude context about reminding you how this relates to bulk metadata in telephone section 215 stuff. So 1998, Congress creates a statute that enables FISA to issue um, production orders uh, to third parties who have records, originally framed really narrowly. It was only for just a handful of certain types of companies. Patriot Act expands that makes it a more general kind Section of sp- – Section 215 of the Patriot Act, yeah, exactly. hence, the, hence the numbering. Exactly. If you're playing at home and you want to know where in the U.S. code to find it, it's 50 U.S. code 1861. But Former.
1: Called- former 50 U.S. code
0: 1861. Oh, is it, uh, well, right, because now you got – That's what I'm saying. Right. Well, so no, but I think it's still codified there.
1: But I thought, I thought the, but it's, it's what's there now is the Freedom Act version.
0: Well, so this is okay, a so really, a, a very important point for me is to dis- disaggregate the, or to draw a distinction between the subset right. of requests for production orders that are relevant for this sort of bulk telephone metadata contact chaining stuff that becomes a big controversy and the more general application of this request for production uh, statute, which is hugely important in, in totally mundane foreign yes. intelligence collection ways. So
1: so the controversy arises, right, because the government, unbeknownst to us, um, adopts an interpretation of Section 215 that allows it to obtain a uh, bulk uh, collection of, of
0: phone records under Section 215. And, and critically the, the FISA court they, they adopt that as a bid to get the FISA court to agree and the FISA court does agree yep. that that's a you know obviously hotly controversial but the FISA court was persuaded this was a proper interpretation of the statute
1: yes although the FISA court had no
0: adversarial briefing on the question but the fact remains they approved <laughs> it and it's just like everything else they do they didn't have adversarial briefing until the amicus process becomes it's actually not just like everything else they do there's there's opportunity
1: for adversarial briefing if the recipient of the production almost
0: everything FISA does is done in the ex parte in camera way that okay, was but done the,
1: but the one Circuit Court to actually rule on the question after the Snowden disclosures. The Second Circuit holds that, in fact, it was not a valid Sure. Well, okay, wait.
0: Don't you're jump ahead to the punchlines of the story. We've got to set it up. All right. So for a while there, it's all done actually without the FISA Court's involvement. The, the idea was the government wanted to have a historical archive of everybody calling everybody so that if and when... At some later point in time, you get John Doe Al Qaeda member's phone and you find out his number is, you know, one, two, three, four. You can then go back and query the database to see if one two three four was in contact with, you know, Steve's number or my number. And if so, then who were we in contact with? And and the idea was maybe you would smoke out a sleeper cell, that sort of thing. You'd find you'd find significant contacts. Um, you could see why they might want to do that. Um, What's interesting is, you know, how in the world did they do it legally speaking? Well, they did it through voluntary cooperation for some number of years. Then they got it shifted onto the basis for telephone data purposes, Section 215. Nobody on the outside knew about this until Snowden leaked it. This was the lead first biggest story that – and really, I I would argue the most pertinent – U.S. specific thing he did. I mean, he leaked all kinds of stuff. They had a lot of uh, external significance. And uh, I would say the bulk metadata revelation was probably the biggest headline of them all for I, us. So
1: I think it was the. it was certainly the headline that resonated the loudest publicly. I yeah. actually, I continue to harbor the a minority view that the far bigger deal was incidental collection of U.S. person communications under Section 702. Really? Yes. Oh, uh,
0: yeah. Okay, we definitely disagree about that. That's fine. So so 2015 was a huge controversy. It set off years of headaches for the Obama administration trying to figure out, you know, to what extent should they keep this? Uh, Maybe they should abandon it. How do you put out the fire of all the political friction it generated? The P-Club, the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board, had a huge impact here when they did a big study of the actual utility of both 215 bulk metadata and Section 702. And as to 702, they read a report saying, hey, this stuff is really valuable and useful in terms of the intel it produces, but 215 bulk metadata, not actually all that useful. And that was quite a blow, and it helped set the political conditions for Congress eventually in the USA Freedom Act to do what I always thought was a little bit of a mealy mouth kind of compromise. Well, where
1: skipped over one other important thing that happened. Okay, yeah, the The, the Second Circuit saying it was unlawful.
0: Yeah, and so that uh, <laughs> there were some judges saying it was lawful at the district court level; some saying it was lawful. This you had Fourth Amendment third-party doctrine issues, right? So Judge but, Leon, I, I'm getting Judge Leon says, "Hey, you know, this violates the Fourth Amendment. It also violates, um, you know, statutory authorities." Uh, I forget it was Judge Pauly. Judge Pauly in New York said, "No, I, I disagree." But the Second Circuit says, "No, we think it's a violation of uh, what was what were the particular things they hung that on uh, the, that that the program was not a reasonable construction
1: of the <laughs> Actually, right, exactly. Without so, reaching the fourth Amendment question. Right. So it was,
0: it was clear that you couldn't go on that way. Um, and unless, course, unless the
1: government petitioned for cert, which it didn't. Which it did not.
0: Um, and, and against the backdrop of this, there's the looming momentum to start chipping away at third party doctrine, which hangs over this yep. whole thing.
1: And there's the sunset, which means that Congress had to revisit it anyway. Exactly. And showing you the utility of sunsets. Hey, hey, hey. Makes Congress. <laughs> you know, <I'm laughs> listening, ding, in, ding. in our
0: world, do, does Congress engage on issues very often without the sunsets? No. Yeah. So um, – what happens? USA Freedom Act basically says, like, all right, no more of that, except you can still do it. You just have to work with the telephone companies serially, and they'll hold the, their little individual haystacks of the information about who you've been dialing. So that all still happens. It's just that there's not one centralized database that has all of it at all times integrated for NSA. And then there's, you know, there's a variety of other bells and whistles that are added in, such as the the NSA doesn't just get to decide they've got a seed number that qualifies as terrorism-related. they got to go to the FISC and and make a reasonableness showing that there is that connection. Um, But really, the the thing does kind of just roll forward on a disaggregated basis, and we didn't hear about it in a dramatic way until last summer when DNI's office, Office of DNI and NSA jointly announced that, hey the telecoms that we have to work with one or more of them has screwed up the implementation of this and they've been feeding back to us phone numbers and and haystack materials that we didn't we shouldn't have had didn't need to get and frankly don't want to get because they're not part of what we asked for and it turns out it's technologically impossible for us to reverse engineer through our data and get out the separate the wheat from the chaff and we think we fixed it going forward, but we're going to go ahead and delete all the stuff we've gotten since 2015 and get a fresh start. Now, that caused a lot of people to really wonder, like, wait a minute, is there a technological infeasibility to this? That doesn't make a lot of sense that there would be, but yet there obviously was a problem. And secondly, is this program still not all that useful in practice? Uh, because if they're really willing to ditch a couple of years worth of this material, it does suggest that maybe the inside perspective is you know, it's, it's Nice, but not essential to have it. And bear in mind, and this is a point I've you know, i seen Thomas Ridd and Pat Gray and others really emphasizing this, we live in a time, by the time you get to 2017, 2018, 2019, where a lot of the communications you're most interested in are not on telephone. The 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 haystack that you'd like to contact, contact chain with is who's using Signal to contact who on Signal, and who's on WhatsApp, and who's on Facebook, who's on this messenger service and that chat service. Um, the conversation's kind of leaving that area. And, and so against that backdrop, we thought USA Freedom Act Collection had been restarted or querying had restarted. And then on the podcast uh, the other day, uh, one of the staffers mentions that, oh, by the way, <laughs> ever since last summer, still haven't been using it. And who knows if the White House is even going to push for renewal on this. So that then turned into a, a very prominent Charlie Savage New York Times story and a lot of commentary from folks in our circle since then. So, Steve, what's your takeaway from this revelation, let's assume again you know, it could be wrong, right? It was such a casual line that it could even be a mistake.
1: Yeah, I would have thought that someone would have someone would have reached out to, to Charlie. It was, say, it was a bunch of no
0: comments so right, far. Right. So right. let's assume, let's assume, hey, we'll take the inferences. Right. We'll we'll credit the complainant and uh, we'll take the inferences in favor of him.
1: It makes me want to go back and look at everything the government said in the context of the you know the sort of the wrangling over what became the USA Freedom Act about why it was so important to keep. The sort of slimmed down version of the authority, as opposed to what a lot of folks in Congress were proposing, which was just to get rid of it. Um, right? That that what were the records? I mean, I I haven't gone back on this carefully, but like I have vague recollections of you know the Obama administration saying, "Listen, we you know we hear you, right? We're going to make it better, but we still need it." Oh, they clearly said that, right? And 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 it seems like. That turned out not to be true, and I'd like to know like, – Well, why do you,
0: why do you yeah. assume that they don't feel like they need it? Isn't it just as likely or even more likely given that we know that yeah. the problem last summer was a that- – Technical problem with the telephone company giving bad data to NSA, why isn't the better interpretation that that problem remains? They thought they were going yeah. to get fixed, and it just hasn't been fixed yet. They may real, really want to get this restarted, but they have this problem still to get past.
1: So we're four years into the USA Freedom Act regime, or almost. I think May or June right, is the, is the four-year anniversary. Um and so we've had this sort of structural problem for a large chunk of that time, and the government hasn't. Made They've a big only deal known of for it. eight months. We're told this. This story broke last summer, and they haven't gone. And they haven't this.
0: gone to Congress for a fix. I mean, like, but just, no, it's a technical problem it, that that can't be overcome through through statute. I mean, like, well, how could it? So my understanding is yeah. that last summer's revelation was. One or more of the right. of the participating companies, for some feature that we don't know about their system, right. they can't seem to accurately respond. They're feeding back no, more than no, no, I to. no.
1: But and this is what I'm saying. So, and so what I'm saying is, and so if that's a if, if that's a technical problem that they're not in a position to overcome quickly, it seems to me that the, that if the program were, were urgently necessary, that would be a reason to go back to Congress and say we need to revert to the old program. Right, because the we need this yeah. data, and the companies are if, if the companies don't have yeah. the technical capacity, to get us back to where we used to be, then get us back to where yeah. we used to be.
0: Right? And, Maybe. Well, who knows? What if we? I, I, I doubt we're going to see that because I think that's way too politically costly. That's, it's such a demonized program, um, perhaps for good reason. So I'm but, a sure what I'm want to But,
1: but if it were critically necessary to protect our national security, I don't think anyone would care that it's demonized, right? Like I, yeah, I if it was like seven oh two level, I agree that's what I'm with saying. you.
0: I don't think anyone can claim that it's seven oh two levels of importance, but to me It's convenient. Seven oh two is well, this is like McCulloch, right? Uh, seven O two is seven oh two is Madisonian necessity and two fifteen arguably is is Hamiltonian necessity. Um but I think I think a big thing uh, we can't look past is the point I mentioned. You like seven, the, You like the way I connected? I, I, I think, I think that's our, our episode title might be Section Seven Hundred Two is Hamiltonian, or no, Two Hundred Fifteen <laughs> is Hamiltonian Necessity. That's about as nerdy as it gets. Um, I really do think that the uh, the metric. So it's a cost benefit analysis, and the costs include include these technical burdens. And there's a quote from um, former podcast guest, NSA General Counsel Glenn Gerstell, last summer when the, the big story broke last year, saying, look, we think we, fi- we think the technical problem's been fixed, so we should be able to resume operations. I think it's proven to be probably, the story's going to turn out to be, that it proved to be more difficult than expected. They can't seem to get it right, even though the company maybe was representing at the time that they'd gotten it fixed. Um, Eventually, that does change the cost-benefit analysis, but then the utility of it may have been relatively high in 2015, in in an age before Signal and WhatsApp becoming more prominent. And in 2019, it may simply look different right now. Anyways, the whole thing is very analogous to what happened with About Collection under 702 Upstream, and how the government there also encountered these technical difficulties and did the right thing um, in the face of over-collection, saying, look, we will set the We'll set that collection program aside for now until we get it technically worked out. I think what's happening here is quite analogous. But as as you point out, there will be those who say, I think what's happening here demonstrates we don't really need it that much. Um, To which I would say, if that's right, Fine, but that doesn't mean we should legislate it out of existence. We should, because if you could assume a technological change comes along where you can actually do this without the overcollection, then maybe the calculus is different. And why should they be prohibited from resuming? So I guess
1: point? it's just—I mean—insofar in as where you stand is a function of where you sit, right? I mean, just in—in in one respect, it just—it reiterates to me the importance of not taking governmental claims of necessity at face value, um, right? And that—and that you know the. Just because the government says we I mean that, that, the, that the Madisonian versus Hamiltonian necessity, um, that what you, what do you mean by necessary is actually, you know something Congress ought to take a lot more seriously. And that we have plenty of evidence of context in the foreign surveillance arena where authorities, the government at one point claimed were urgently necessary, it ends up abandoning on its own. Um, presumably because of some determination, it's no longer urgently
0: necessary. I certainly think grains of salt are always warranted with any government claims. Um, so we're on common ground hey, there. Hey, but I, I don't trust see, but verify. I, I think it's more likely this will turn out to be a story not at all about shifting or exposed claims of lack of necessity. It'll turn out to be much more of a story about continuing technical difficulties, and they're trying to do the right thing vis-a-vis those difficulties. I mean, if they were if they were plowing ahead knowing they were getting over collection because of technical difficulties, the real story would be, why are you doing that? Why didn't you continue to wait? Mm-hmm. I think they continue to wait. So um, here's the bottom line, though, that I think is most important. There's a decent chance that this episode will contribute to momentum not to renew USA Freedom Act. That's right. The effect of letting that expire full stop, like an, an, a complete sunset, is to snap Section 215, or rather, 50 US code 1861, it'll snap it back to the 1998 original version. Yep. Now that is, I argue in the blog post at Lawfare today, that's throwing the baby out with the bathwater because that was a, you know, you lose much more than the contact chaining telephone stuff. You're taking what was a uh, a relatively wide open set of entities to which you could submit these production requests for other tailored, targeted, you know, target specific reasons. Uh, You're snapping it back to a world in which you could only do this with I think the list of original entities was um – Places that rent storage spaces, right. places that rent vehicles, kind like of
1: cares. Post Oklahoma City,
0: it was Oklahoma City and World Trade Center bombing. Yep. Lessons learned. Let's let's allow document requests to them and no one else. And it, that was silly. The Patriot Act right. change was like, a like, good like, change.
1: Like pressure cookers after the Boston yeah. Marathon.
0: And if people want to put in an exclusion to leave libraries out, this time, <laughs> that's fine. I'm sure the government's I, gonna okay with that. This would okay be a good thing,
1: that. though, for PCLOB to do. Like this, write a report
0: on what yes. what's, what's needed and what's not. Adam Klein, get on it. We Seriously. this is this is a. This is a P-Club-ripe topic.
1: All right. Um, why don't we switch to, to sort of uh, a lightning round mode, um, starting with the Chelsea Manning subpoena. Okay, so uh, Chelsea will be testifying, I gather? Uh, so, uh, in, so Chelsea Manning received a grand jury subpoena from the Eastern District of Virginia. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't know what the grand jury is investigating, but the widespread assumption, which I have no reason to doubt... Um, is that it's something to do with Julian Assange and WikiLeaks going back to the the accidental revelation last right. fall that the government has some kind of indictment
0: and the and the the journalism community in particular yes. very concerned about what exactly would be the nature of possible charges against uh, WikiLeaks and Assange. There's a, there's a theory out there um, that I think probably will turn out to be true that it's going to end up being a narrow charge that doesn't call into question the, the sort of scary, right. It's not going to be about publishing and, and, soliciting leaks as such, it's going to be conspiracy to commit computer fraud and abuse act violations, where Assange is going to be shown to... An
1: active participant in the leak, as opposed to just... talking about,
0: here's how you can get into this file, here's how you can transmit it. It's going to be a simple hacking conspiracy.
1: I I, I hope that's right, because if so, it'll be a lot less controversial. I mean, the concern concern that I think journalists have rightly um, is that the plain text of the Espionage Act would indeed make it a crime. Yeah, it's always loomed as a shadow, right? Right? It's just a line the government hasn't crossed. Um, And the concern is that Assange would be a sufficiently unsympathetic character um, to cross that line. Hopefully the sort of subpoena of Chelsea Manning is actually to try to um, establish factual predicates to know it wasn't, man, it wasn't, uh, you know, the leaks, WikiLeaks wasn't passive. WikiLeaks was actively exactly. involved in the initial theft.
0: And more than just like, hey, we'd love it if you would share it. Right. You know, not just right. like a journalist like soliciting if information. If it is what story. you say, I love it. Right, but it's, yeah. So I think that I think that probably it's going to turn out to be that. That this is actually a, so. a good sign from sort of a freedom of press perspective.
1: Um, Really quickly, do you have anything you want to say about the, the, the Javanka security clearance imbroglio? No, just, you know, it's. What, what is there to say that's not obvious on the face of it? It's so, outrageous. So I, I have two things to say. One is everyone's lying. Because for months, everyone has been, for months, if not years, everyone's been saying that there's been no exter- no pressure from the president
0: in right. the security. Whereas client. it turns out the entire decision was a presidential override of the professionals' recommendations.
1: And two, just to go back to the point that you and I have fought about so many, 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 many times, um, both Don McGahn and John Kelly apparently um, wrote memos to their file <laughs> about how this, these actions were being taken over their objections. I'd say
0: by 10 years from now, we'll be looking back at a lot of memos to files from a lot of people who were quite quietly trying to make sure they have a paper trail to right. fall back on. And, I think th- and the
1: question, once again, which you, I'm not going to sort of relitigate it because I think people know where we stand, is w- whether that's actually effective as a checking me- mechanism or whether it's just covering their you-know-what. Um, and the better well, thing These to things do, aren't
0: mutually exclusive.
1: And the better thing to do would be to resign
0: and protest. That part, you know, I disagree. I but, know. Well, I, I disagree with depending on who the future is. Still glad that Dan Coates is where he is.
1: Okay, fine. But, like, I mean, imagine the White House Chief of Staff resigning over, you know.
0: Wouldn't you rather have Wouldn't – aren't we all better in a world in which H.R. Uh, McMaster is National Security Advisor as opposed to John Bolton? I mean, there are positions where yeah. – you know, Jim, Jim Mattis. Don't you want Jim Mattis in there? There are positions yes. where you want these people in there. Even, even if they – I'm not sure John Kelly a,
1: is on my list.
0: I, he, You know, it may well be he did more good. I don't know. He probably did a lot of harm too. I don't know the details. But I am quite confident that – there was some real crazy monkey business going on sure. before he got there, and he did a lot of good by trying to professionalize. I just
1: want little. to say, for the record, I'm not going to be impressed by memos to file. Like, there you go. You know, just, uh, I'm not going to be impressed by I, memos. I to don't file. doubt that. Okay. Um, I don't want to say anything about the Michael Cohen
0: hearing. It was no. just ugh. Yeah, I agree. I mean, like enough other people are saying enough other things.
1: Uh, yes. If, if I I would have loved it if there had been a single question from a Republican member that was actually about what Trump did, but say love you. All right. Um. The termination of the national emergency, right? The House voted um, to terminate um, with fewer Republicans crossing over than I had expected. I thought we'd get to 250 or 260. I think the, the pressure to,
0: you know, really confront your principles on that will be more acute when, once there's a veto. and then so, it should, right.
1: so it looks uh, like the Senate has the votes. It looks like the Senate's going to vote 51 or 52 votes to terminate. Yep. And then the president's going to veto.
0: Is there any I – don't, I don't see any reason to think that barring some dramatic developments that they're going to get to 60 in the no, Senate. No,
1: no. Well, they need 67.
0: Oh right, yeah. Sorry, I was thinking. I was thinking <laughs> sixty. Jeez. No, no, yeah, no. So there's, but there's not. But I,
1: I just want. I mean, I, I, I you know, n- not that my politics are surprising anyone who listens to this podcast. But I think it is quite a powerful reflection of the state of the Republican Party that so few Republicans are actually willing to vote against the president's
0: preposterous national emergency declaration. I think that uh, we predicted that it's going to go down just like it's going to go down. That it'll I pass. thought more Republicans would cross over. Uh, I think more will on the veto, the veto override vote that eventually will follow. Uh, I'm pretty sure they would actually have the vote, right? Could McConnell. So the it's not it's, call not, that it's, it's vote? not clear to me it's not clear
1: to, I have I'm not a parliamentarian. I had thought that um there's some there's some play in the joints for which chamber would vote to override first and that if it fails
0: in one chamber, the other chamber doesn't have to vote. Yeah, um, interesting. So, I don't know that. Yeah. I was also thinking that the uh the fast track procedures in the National Emergencies Act, they definitely ensure yeah. You get this oh, no, vote, said, but, but I, I'm not I don't sure know they fast tracked the override. Know, right, vote. I don't know that they fast tracked the override, which vote. means that McConnell could just do this. Yeah,
1: so good stuff. All right, and then um, really quickly, we want to talk about the news that broke this morning um, with President Trump override, or sorry, not overriding, but rescinding um, an Obama executive order when it came to um, transparency for drone strikes. Um, so. I don't want to get too far into the details because it's a little complicated. Because there's not just the now rescinded Obama executive order, Bobby, but there are two statutory reporting yeah.
0: requirements. So should we should we enumerate this for anyone who's sort of writing down this? Stuff? Sure. So on one hand, um, Obama's executive order. Let's see uh, the July first, two thousand sixteen order uh, thirteen seven three two. Yep. Uh, Section three required the DNI to release uh, basically every spring an unclassified uh, description of the number of strikes undertaken by the U.S. against terrorist targets outside of areas of active hostilities as well as assessments of combatant and non-combatant deaths uh, caused thereby. Now, note, note the limitations there. Uh, this was only a report for the uh, use of force outside areas of active hostilities, which begs the question, which ones currently are the areas of active hostilities? There's been a big change uh, in, I think, in... Summer 2016, uh, Somalia was added mm-hmm. to the act of hostility, and and rightly so because if you go look at AFRICOM's press releases, mm-hmm. there's a lot of airstrikes uh, that take place there. Right, but the idea was,
1: but the idea behind all of this was to increase transparency for those uses of military force in places we weren't necessarily right. expecting. Right, but
0: well, yeah, right. So I think most people, the, this fuzzy line that both Obama and Trump are using of. Areas where we use lethal force that are active hostilities and those that are somehow not, even though in both places we're using lethal force, it's a little fuzzy. So, I I mean, right. I I don't – I have – I mean, I I thought the Obama transparency measures were woefully inadequate. But at least there was a step. Well, okay. So I want want listeners to have a clear sense of like – so where does this matter? So Afghanistan has always been treated as an area of active hostilities. Iraq, Syria has been treated as an area of active hostilities. Yemen. Uh, Somalia had not been – But now it is. So it's outside of this as well. Now, Yemen, I think, was not treated. Uh, Obviously, it's an area of active hostilities for other people. But I don't think our role was treated. Even in eastern Yemen? I don't, I don't think the okay. U.S. – so the U.S. use of lethal force periodically against AQAP has, I think, not been categorized. Listeners will correct right. me if I'm wrong. I'm not no, – let me be clear. I'm not saying we don't treat it as part of the AUMF, no, et no, cetera. No. It absolutely is. We're talking about which zones get the special policy so, so subcategorization. I'll,
1: so there so there was, the, there was the, the 2016 executive order. Then there are also these two statutory provisions, Section 1057 of the FY 2018 National Defense Authorization Act, Section 1062 of the FY 2019 Act. Bobby, those are specific to civilian casualties. Mm-hmm. Um, and those require- are right, so
0: not necessarily number of airstrikes.
1: That's the thing. And so those require at least some public reporting um, of civilian casualties um, arising from these strikes, although the 2019 version um, allows the Secretary of Defense to get around public reporting if he makes a particular certification. Right. Um, I stress that because the thing that the Obama executive order did that neither statute did um, was to require disclosure of the number of strikes. Um, right, the and, and, Bobby, the number of combatant deaths, right? That, that the, mm-hmm. the statutes are focused on civilian casualties. Right. The executive order wanted also just general reporting on the total number of strikes and the total number of combatant deaths as well as non-combatant deaths. And that's what President Trump today rescinded, mind you, with no explanation as to why. Right. There's nothing in the executive order that explains why that requirement was too onerous um, or was somehow interfering with military functions. Or there there isn't even like the the pretense of a claim that there was some compelling justification for rescinding this, to my mind, laudable, if woefully inadequate, transparency requirement.
0: Well, so I guess a couple things to say about this. So one is. it doesn't follow. We have no idea what's going to go on, right? What, so where are we not going to know what's happening? We won't the, – the order that's been rescinded wasn't affecting Somalia, which is the current place outside of Iraq, Afghanistan, and Syria, by far where we're most active. So it's, it's it's not covered anyways. That decision already kind of came home to roost. That said, you get weekly statements out of AFRICOM disclosing what they're willing to disclose. It's not like there's no information there. Um, Although that might dry up now. Uh, you know, I, but it hasn't before. This, this doesn't affect Somalia. No, Somalia has been transparent without this. So this shouldn't change that. Um, it, to the best of my knowledge, I, and I think it's been widely acknowledged, like we almost never use force in Pakistan anymore. It happens every now and then, but it's once in a blue moon. But like, I am mean, thinking, so like, thinking about like Yemen's the Yemen, place well m- Mali, Niger,
1: I mean like the you know countries where we certainly don't have ongoing sustained combat operations but where we have at least in the past. Right. So that's, force. What wanna, that's what I want to
0: that's what I want to isolate too. So the yeah. places where this matters, Yemen's the place where it really matters because we do use force frequently there. Um, there is very little reason to believe and I appreciate that the whole point here is you, you m- we might be seeing reduced transparency but with this transparency there was very little evidence that we were frequently using uh, force in the Sahel region, um, that, we, that we were using it using force in Niger, Mali, et cetera. That That may change in the future, and we won't see as much because of this order. I think that would be the place where the most concern would be that this was one mechanism. That said, um, there's all sorts of reporting to Congress that ensures there is specific, uh, it's called sensitive military operations. If the U.S. uses lethal force, uh, in a military capacity outside an area of active hostilities, members of the House and Senate Armed Services Committee, including the Democratic members, are absolutely going to be notified. And if there's something squirrely going on about some new location where this is happening and the public doesn't know, I think we can expect that we'll hear something from that context. And there's a covert action parallel, of course, with the House and Senate it- And I'm not saying that, therefore, we don't need to have any other sources. That's not what I'm saying. But we shouldn't think that now nobody knows what's happening.
1: So, okay, I I certainly agree that it's not the case that now nobody knows what's happening. However, um, color me skeptical that the members of the House and Senate Armed Services Committees are necessarily representative of the full range of views of the American people when it comes to knowing where we're using force and why. Um, And so it just seems to me that, you know— Given how terrible our transparency is already in this context, it seems like if you're going to make it worse, you ought to have a good reason for it.
0: So I think that uh, I have more faith, I guess faith is the right word, that if something really significantly different from the past Mm -hmm. begins occurring with where we use force. And, and the members in Congress know about it that the public will then learn about. I, I have little doubt that if it's really interesting, the public's going to learn through that mechanism. If it's a radical shift, if it's an incremental shift, I'm not so sure. Right, right. So that's what I'm saying. So if it's if it's marginal. And then the question is, well, what other mechanisms are that we might know about this through? All right. Um, All this is to say, like, you know, it seems like
1: it's one thing to change policy because there you have a compelling reason to do it. I mean, this just smacks me like what, you know.
0: Oh, well, look, let's imagine I don't, you know, I don't think either of us think that they did this just for the hell of it. They did no. it because they want to have less flack right. based on what comes out in these reports. Right. And, and that's would, a bad thing. Well, right. So you can say that it's a bad thing, but they're going to say, look, we've been giving these reports and did anyone give us any credit for any of this? No, it just became ammunition to criticize us. That's what they would say. I guarantee you. Yes,
1: heaven that. forbid the American people know where we're using force in
0: the p- name of the American people. Right. So I'm just saying what I think they would say is that we put this out there. We tried this yeah. for a few years. It didn't It didn't make anyone say like, okay, now we know. It just became the fodder for criticism. That's what they would probably say.
1: Oh, I, so, and there I disagree. I mean, I, I actually think that there are very I mean, I, I think there are various examples of things we learned from the reporting under the executive order that, you know, in many respects just pushed us to want to ask more questions. But that's as it should be. And, no, I agree. And I'm not, irony, look, let me be clear. Yeah. I wasn't saying that's what no, I no, think. I I'm just trying to convey that what's the logic of having done this? But, the, but the irony is that if the government's not going to put out its own numbers, right, that's going to yeah. put that much more sort of focus hey, on NGO
0: numbers. It's a good day for the Bureau of Investigative Journalism.
1: And, and, and you know, in that regard… I think it's yet another example of sort of, you know, shooting yourself in the foot to spite your face. I mean, right that you know, the it, it's one thing if the government says there have been eleven strikes and the and human rights first or yeah. amnesty says there have been four hundred and seventeen. That's right. just silence. It's another thing if the amnesty says there's been four hundred and seventeen and the government's like, we have no comment.
0: Yeah. Well I think that's the place I think that's the key. They they want to be back to that. They just don't want to comment. Yeah, I think that's a mistake. In in no,
1: in multiple respects. But what do I know? Um speaking of of Massive battles. <laughs> Is it time? I think it's frivolity time. Friends,
0: if, if you don't want to hear the frivolity, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you soon. But for the wise among you who there are cannot six, wait. There are six
1: episodes of Game of Thrones coming in in five weeks, Bobby. Hey, doesn't
0: the first one drop like the day before the tax deadline? April 14th. Yeah. <laughs> what, what does that have to do Is it April? You? No, just like people are – how many people are up trying to like finish their taxes? Oh, and watching Game be, of Thrones. And then Game of Thrones comes on. They're like, oh, shoot. I, uh, what am I going to do? Okay, I'm going to take an hour. So yeah, the reason why, this. so the
1: reason why Bobby and I, the, the 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 thin read on which Bobby and I are resting on the justify talking about Game of Thrones again in our frivolity, um, is the release of the full two minute trailer for season eight, and and do you have do you have reactions to the trailer? So um, the the Ringer um has a sort of frame by frame breakdown. Oh, does it really? Of the trailer, That's awesome. It's actually, and and I learned a lot. Well, from I am
0: quite confident that one of the big takeaways because yes. I, I saw a lot of buzz and yes. I noticed this myself when I watched it. You get this. You know, Gendry. Gendry. <laughs> With the, uh, there, there's is a where, There's a
1: scene where there is some blacksmithing
0: going on, right? And so it's for those who follow Game of Thrones. There's a lot of speculation: is there going to be a surprise winner at the end? Does it, you know, did John and Daenerys like hop on two dragons and fly off over a rainbow to go live a wonderful life together? And then Gendry sits the Iron Throne at the end. It, in many ways, I gotta say that. Unless there's a, a miraculous amount of story uh, additions that come out over the next six episodes or the next book or whatever, where suddenly he just gets more fleshed out and becomes more interesting, it's a little deflating to think that that's how it ends. Unless part of how it ends is it just ceases to matter much who's on the Iron Throne for some reason, and then you know so what he sits it. Um, I think it's just sort of a red herring, probably meant to make us kind of wonder like, oh wait a minute, is is maybe is maybe Gendry going to be the, the king in the end? but it is it is striking that he's still there what what stood out to you a lot
1: of the trailer takes place in the crypts of winterfell yeah and and it makes me wonder and like and people are a lot of people are in there and so it makes me wonder if like that's some refuge during the battle. So uh, right.
0: apparently, it's got kind of a, a right. Lord of the Rings, kind of Return of the King kind of feel to it. So there. apparently,
1: the centerpiece of the season is the Battle of Winterfell, which which by all accounts takes place in episode three oh.
0: of six. <laughs> Book your travel plans accordingly.
1: Uh, right, so that's so that's uh, what is that? That's April twenty
0: eighth. Um, I'm gonna check my calendar <laughs> down to make sure I'm home that night. Um, we'll have a watch party. Uh, you you talk a big game, Jesse. Th- th- from Game of Thrones,
1: you know I'm reliable on right. this. Um, anyway, but all that's to say, the the what's so what what the what one of the things I learned from The Ringer is if you accept the sort of assumption about the narrative of season of, of season eight, um, everything from the trailer is from the first three episodes. Yeah, they don't want to tip. And there's actually man. nothing in the trailer that tells you anything about what happens beyond the Battle of Winterfell, yeah.
0: which, as it should be, this early on. Okay, uh, I don't think Bran showed up anywhere. Nope, no Bran. So. And so, combining that with your theory, there we might think. it's Oh wait, going to no, no. Get-
1: I'm sorry. I think the Ringer. I think the Ringer shows one scene where you see him briefly. Okay. So you know. Oh yeah, no, because
0: he's talking. No, no. Bran is talking about Bran, there,
1: there There's a There's a voiceover from uh, okay. Bran. All right. So but there's there, there are some people who don't show. I mean, the Ringer has a whole. Folks who are really yeah, nerdy no. about this, go check out the Ringer's breakdown of the trailer because it's That's quite comprehensive. pretty
0: comprehensive. Awesome. All right. Uh, what else to notice? So there's uh, Arya is looking at a big knife in her hand, talking about cutting people's faces off. It's a funky looking blade, and it looks a little dragon glassy to me. She gonna go cut the, the the Night King's face off. She looks she looks bloody and pissed and something. Yeah, yeah. In, in many ways, she's actually been the protagonist, right? The 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 non. Well, who knows? Maybe Arya ends up on the throne. Um, what huh? else? I don't know. Somebody's got to. Uh, Cersei is looking like she's ready to go to battle. She's she's drinking. Imagine that. She's pregnant. Well. So that's, that, right? Well, so she that, was, right? That's, that,
1: so there we, right? See all the things you tried I to also do.
0: think that the medical advice is different. You don't think they had fetal, fetal alcohol syndrome? They, they, they uh, may not have had quite the medical. And, sh- you know, if you look closely at her attending physician, Clyburn, uh, he may not be the best source of medical advice either. Yeah, fair enough. Um, yeah, everything else looked pretty conventional. You get glimpses, you know, there's... Uh, John and Daenerys look like they're uh, advertising for some clothing catalog. You know, like perfectly. <laughs> now, know. does
1: John? Now, is that is the second dragon for John? They sure make it look that way. Like they,
0: they all but have him like climb up on side. Yeah, yeah. I really think they're gonna have to fly over the rainbow together. The dragons, you know, holding hands or something.
1: All the same, I mean, I, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't divine nearly as much from the trailer as as the Ringer folks did. All right. um, but. All I got to say is, like, this is going to be six weeks of television, That's the likes of which we've never seen before. And, and then what, I am I am there for it.
0: So is there any speculation yet? Because obviously HBO and everyone else under the sun is like, hey, what can be the next right. must-see, must-discuss kind of adventure series? Is there anything? I mean, presumably there's a season three of Westworld coming down the pike at some point. Yeah, they, I mean, obviously successful, but I don't think it can be the heir. Who's going to be the heir to, um, to Game of Thrones?
1: Maybe a, a Game of Thrones prequel. Maybe you go back to the... Yeah. Um, you know the the sort of the mad the time of the Mad King.
0: No, oh, yeah, you absolutely you could kind of go the Hobbit route. And just start spilling out more stories. Um, the uh, Robert's pa- Rebellion. Pa- Patrick Rothfuss' series, Name of the Wind, which mm-hmm. is really good and also currently really suffering from the same series incompletion delay <laughs> yeah. problems. Uh, I heard that got optioned. Mm-hmm. Um, somebody good had optioned that, so maybe that that's one that could hold up pretty well.
1: Everyone keeps telling me to watch The Expanse. So, I got to. I okay, got to. So, I am,
0: I am six volumes into that series. Ah. And it is. So, you know, the the author, it's a, it's a, it's a pen name. And the author uh, was somebody who worked with George Martin. And basically, as I understand it, said, well, surely you can do the same kind of series in the same format for, for space opera. And I got to say, I, I put off listen, reading it for a long time. Finally picked it up a few months back. And I'm, I can't put them down. They're really fun. And there already is a TV series, The Expanse. And, um, I think we should end up watching some of that so we could compare notes. There you go. All right. I think we've done enough. Probably. Um, Let's let him go. Yeah. Uh, it's
1: almost NCAA tournament time, so maybe around right about this time next week we'll do some NCAA uh, tournament frivolity. Oh, yeah, yeah. But also, listen, I'm, I am mindful that our frivolity veers toward um, sports ball. And, and other and other. Oh, no, we
0: have a lot of we have a lot of Broadway and movies. Yeah, and but other but, but I would. I mean, too. you know,
1: we encourage our listeners to send us requests. I would love, especially, requests for some more frivolous topics. Cause I think you and I revert toward entertainment based topics and if folks have ideas for non entertainment based frivolity topics um please send them our way i would love to hear them
0: especially if they involve categories we can debate indeed defining
1: the category is
0: always our favorite oh i forgot i forgot to mention um so south by southwest is beginning soon lots of interesting people coming to austin uh one of our our favorite people ben witness will be here this weekend and ben decided we should all get together for a meetup Mm. here in austin for anyone who wants to come out and and see the whole crew Ben, Steve, me, we'll all be there. And I've already heard from a number of other people who are coming in from South By. Uh, We haven't announced the location yet, but I'll just go ahead and throw this out there now. (laughs) I need to call the place to make sure it isn't otherwise booked, but uh, Haymaker. Haymaker on Manor Road, which is a little east of UT. Um, great outdoor area. The weather's going to be fantastic. Friday, 4 p.m. If you're in the Austin area this Friday and you want to come out and say hi, we'd love to see you. Please come out and see us at Haymaker at 4 p.m. And by the way, check my Twitter feed to make sure I don't have to change that when I call up Haymaker later today and they tell me, what are you talking about? We've been booked by a band or something. It is that so, time of year in Austin yeah, where you,
1: you check twice before you go anywhere. Yeah, it
0: turns out, no, no, Jay-Z's private parties here. Get lost.
1: Jay-Z, R. Kelly.
0: Uh, I, 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 I will make a prediction <laughs> to will not be
1: R. Kelly um, Well on that note He is at Bobby Chesney I'm at Steve underscore Vladek We are at NSL Podcast <sighs> I need a vacation You always need a vacation I really need a vacation right, Well spring break's coming up Spring break is coming up Stay safe out there Adios